Hello and welcome to Not a Brand New Place, the podcast that takes our beer companies and reports them before Hollywood has a fans team. It's a little bit like Lindsay and Fiction. I'm Lindsay and I use she her pronouns. And this week, uh, everybody get ready for rats. It's rats time. It's rat podcast. Rats, okay. Yes, specifically, we are talking about the animated film The Secret of Nim. An adaptation of Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim by Robert C. O'Brien. The animated film, most famously being the first feature-length work headed by Don Bluth. Okay. Uh, have you ever seen Secret of Nim? Yes. A long time ago. That's fair. I saw bits and pieces of it because, like, they showed it to us in class in, like, first grade one day, but uh, they didn't have time to show the whole film. Mm-hmm. So I only saw bits and pieces, and I was like, "What? what is this? What's going on? Why are there mice? Is this Redwall? <laughs> <laughs> it is not Redwall, but I have to imagine that Secret of Nim and Redwall very much influenced a lot of people going forward. Yes. Very, very similar vibes, mm-hmm. except uh, Secret of Nim is more modern. Redwall is strictly medieval. Secret of Nim is like, well, it takes place in the era it came out. It was written in the 70s, and the movie came out in the early 80s, 82. Yeah, set on a modern farm somewhere out in in America. Yeah, well, I think that it was an English farm in the... Wait, actually, no, hang on. Is Robert C. O'Brien English even? I don't think so. No, he's American. Yeah. So yeah, it was set on an American farm. Yep. But Mrs. Brisby has a bit of a transatlantic accent. Yeah. That's one of the first things, is that uh, the book was Mrs. Frisbee, but because they couldn't uh, like get a licensing agreement set up with the Frisbee Corporation for their flying rubber discs, they had to change the name to Miss Frisbee. Yeah. And they also changed the name from uh, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim to The Secret of Nim because it sounded more fantastical. And also that old dodge of like, boys won't go anything if there is even a hint of a female presence there. Unfortunately. We gotta sell the boys! The only market that matters is the boys! We gotta sell to the boys! Yep. Yep. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> as I mentioned, it was spearheaded by Don Bluth, who got his start working under Disney, was a huge proponent of uh, keeping the old ways alive, uh, the old style of animation, but also pushing traditional 2D animation to its limit. Uh, when he eventually gets to creating his own stuff, him and the people working with him uh, make a point of like, having no reused frames, no stenciling. It's All of it is hand-drawn, and so it's all unique. And you can tell by mm-hmm. the animation. Like, when I watched Secret... By the way, I first watched Secrets of Nim a week ago. <laughs> and I immediately am like, hmm, I gotta, I gotta do something with this. There is, this, is, this is good, but there's parts of it that are itching at my brain. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he, he was very... Made a point of, like, making sure the artistry of the work stayed the same. Mm-hmm. And so he worked on stuff like he was hired by Walt Disney as an assistant to John Lounsbury for Sleeping Beauty in 59. Oh, wow. Although he, act- okay, so after helping, he le- Sleeping Beauty was released in 59, but the production took a while. So he actually quit in 1957 before the movie was released because he found the work kind of boring. Mm-hmm. Um, then he went to Argentina on a mission for the Mormon church, but we're not going to worry about that today. Yeah. Um, and then he opened a theater in Culver City. He he just opened a theater. Like, hmm, I've got Mormon money. Let's make a theater. (laughs) 
Then he got his degree from Brigham Young. Damn, okay, Don Bluth, I don't know. I hope you're not deep in the Mormon paint these days. <laughs> Anyways, sorry, got distracted doing Wikipedia research. Yeah. Um, in 67, he returns to the animation industry. He joins Filmation to work on layouts for The Archie Show and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. In 71, he finally returns full-time to Disney as an animation trainee. His first project is Robin Hood, which he animates the sequence of Robin Hood stealing gold from Prince John, rescuing a rabbit infant, and romancing Maid Marian near a waterfall. For Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2, he animated Rabbit alongside Lounsbury. And during production on The Rescuers, Bluth was promoted to directing animator alongside the remaining members of Disney's Nine Old Men. He then worked as an animation director on Pete's Dragon, and his last involvement was Disney in 78 for the short The Small One. Uh, and while this was all happening, he was producing an independent short film, Banjo the Woodpile Cat, okay. where it was inspired by a cat that lived in a woodpile when he was a wee lad. A wee lad! Huh. He's still alive, by the way. I was fully prepared to be like, ah, tragically, the late great Don Bluth passed away in 2002. Nah, he's still kicking. Yep, he's 85. Yes. Um, so he did animate some sequences for The Fox and the Hound, but he was clashing with executives for artistic control and also animation training. So on his 42nd birthday in 1979, he just says, fuck it, I'm leaving. Who's with me? And 15 other people were with him. Yeah. Um, it was, it was the biggest exodus from Disney since the strike. Yeah. And I was just thinking like, was this kind of in the Dark Ages era? Like just before the, like the big... Um, like renaissance happened well and here's the thing because I was watching some stuff on the creation of Secret of Nim Don Bluth indirectly spurned the renaissance oh because after Secret of Nim was a sleeper hit mm-hmm. I mean it did not do great in theaters because it was up against like E.T. And, and stuff like that I think it was oh, E.T. Yeah. and Alien 1982 was like a pop culture year of film yeah 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 it, it was in competition with a blockbuster E.T. the extraterrestrial um, and then it performed better in those theaters alone in its opening week than Poltergeist, Rocky Three, Firefox, and Star Trek Two. Um, so <laughs> it was only a moderate success in theaters, but it was a huge success on home video, cable, and foreign release, which ultimately helped to turn a profit. Oh, yeah. And it caught the attention of Steven Spielberg, who then goes on to help Don Bluth fund a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, he was apparently going to animate a version of East of the Sun, West of the Moon, but that never took off. Yeah. But again, thanks to Secret of Nim, he was able to animate stuff for Dragon's Lair and uh, Dragon's Lair 2. Steven Spielberg helped him produce American Tale and The Land Before Time. Um, and so it was those two, really, American Tale and Land Before Time, that really helped for- force Disney to put pedal to the metal. Well, not, not pedal to metal, because one of the other issues was that they were being overworked. Don yeah. Booth and the, the Blue Squad. Yeah. And so... When and it's ironic because like we part of the reason they left is because they were being incredibly overworked and when they finally got funding for Secret of Nim they had to be even more incredibly overworked to get out in time, but they did this with the knowledge that like they got to produce it their way and that if they were successful they would have a longer lead time and be able to bring more people on and have more resources for their next yes. project. Yeah. Which is a really interesting parallel to one of the elements of the book. Uh, part, cut out of the movie, but in the book. One of the issues is that the rats don't want to be stealing anymore, and so they enact their plan to have a completely independent existence from humans. Uh, but in their preparations, they realize that in order to stop stealing from humans, we'll need to spend the next two years stealing more things than we've ever stolen before, just so that we can move. Yeah. <laughs> but they did it. They got they got Secret of Nim out. It is an incredibly well-animated movie. 
You should go watch it. It's still available on Tubi. The sequel is available on Tubi, too. Don't watch the sequel. I was thinking about watching the sequel, and I looked up if I should watch the sequel, and I came away with the takeaway of don't watch the sequel. Just don't watch the sequel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's sequels to the books too, which they easily could have used to like follow. And they're like, nah, let's do let's do something different. <laughs> let's have Martin Short, or oh no, it wasn't Martin Short. It was Eric Idle. Eric Idle playing an evil mouse who's been brainwashed. Oh joy. <laughs> Anyways, but the point I was getting at was that because. Uh, Secret of Nim and then American Tale and Lamb Before Time were continuously more successful. That was what forced Disney to really figure their shit out and they created the Renaissance. Yeah. So Disney never would have started curb stomping the Don Bluth productions if Don Bluth productions were not so good at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And is like, okay, let's, let's look at the other things Don Bluth made. Um, All Dogs Go to Heaven, eh, Rockadoodle, weak, Thumbelina, weak, Troll in Central Park, weak. Pebble and the Penguin, bad. <laughs> Anastasia, amazing. No yep. notes. Highly commercially <laughs> successful. I don't care if it's based on a conspiracy theory. Look, it was very formative to young Lindsay. She wouldn't be here <laughs> in her current form without Anastasia. Yeah. Young Lindsay being like, but this isn't historically accurate. I'm going to become the greatest scholar of all time. And young Connor's like, ooh, I like the dress with the flowy sleeves. Well, I also like the dress with the flowy sleeves. And I got the Barbie that wasn't the Barbie version. And then, I don't know, it, it was like uh, not even ten years later and they found the last of the Romanoff bodies and Lindsay was very sad. Aww. <laughs> this Barbie escaped during the Russian Revolution. <laughs> anyway, Bartok the Magnificent. Bad. Direct to DVD. <laughs> Titan AE could have been great, but there was too much else going on. Yeah. And truly, I think it is the fact that Don Bluth was such a stickler for the traditional stuff that the jump to 3D would have been very difficult. I mean, clearly was very difficult for oh, him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't think he could have integrated it the same way that Studio Ghibli managed to integrate uh, CGI into their uh, into their toolbox. Yeah. Also, I'm, I'm looking at his Wikipedia page now. Apparently, he... Uh, also did animation for the Scissor Sisters music video for Mary in 2004. Huh. Oh, and he also directed the animated sequence in Xanadu. Yeah. Remember the Xanadu movie? <laughs> it's about roller discos. Yeah. Xanadu was one of the inspirations for Dazzler, right? Yes. Yeah. Especially when they made her a white girl. Yeah. Instead of going the Grace Jones route. Uh, the the most recent thing he worked on was Tapper World Tour, which was a mobile game hmm. based on the Midway Arcade game Tapper. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, Rats of NIM. Let me let me let me tell you about NIM. NIM stands for National Institute of Mental Health, and the secret of NIM, as well as Miss Frisbee, Mrs. Frisbee, and the Rats of NIM, it hmm. focuses on uh, a, a field mouse named Mrs. Frisbee. She's never given a first name. Yeah. Uh, apparently the fandom likes to refer to her as Elizabeth after the, uh, voice actress. Um, Elizabeth Hartman. Hartman. Yes, thank you. Um, so Mrs. Frisbee, she is a widow. Her husband Jonathan died the previous year and she has four children. Uh, their names are Teresa, Martin, Timothy, and Cynthia. And Timothy is sick. He's always been a sick little boy because he got bit by a spider and now he's got pneumonia. So it starts off, she goes and she finds Mr. Ages, and Mr. Ages gives her some medicine because he's a very smart mouse. 
And but he also says like he has pneumonia, he cannot be moved for like a month because if he gets a chill in the air, the pneumonia is gonna come back and be worse, and they won't be able to cure it this time. And this is a bad thing, bad timing because movie day is almost upon us. Uh, the farmer farmer Fitzgibbons is about to plow the field. And if they don't get out of their home and move to their summer home, they're going to get caught in the plow and they're all going to die. But if they move Timothy before it's too warm outside, then he's going to catch a chill and he's going to die. So uh, what do I do? Uh, but fortunately, uh, also earlier in the story, she helped save a crow named Jeremy, which... I <laughs> Jeremy is one of those names where it's like applying it to anything who's not a human and also anything that's not just like a normal contemporary piece of fiction. It just sounds incredibly out of place because mm -hmm. you don't expect Jeremy's to be in the sci-fi or in the fantasy realm. Yeah. There's a, like, Jeremiah? Sure, I can buy that. But Jeremy? Just Jeremy? There's a Jeremy yeah. in the Sentai right now. Did you know that? Oh, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, um. yeah, the, the current, <laughs> the current six ranger in King Oger, his name is Jeremy. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to point out that Jeremy was played by Dom DeLuise, who, um, he was a very famous voice actor and comedian, and he once appeared on Stargate SG-1, um, as kind of like, um, you know, a very humorous character. I think one, I think his son worked on, uh, Stargate SG-1, um, I think as part of the crew. Yeah. Yeah, and the actor who played Teal'c, like, he was like out of focus most of the episode like turned away or like voicing stuff off screen because he couldn't stop laughing whenever Eloise <laughs> was on was doing his thing <laughs> Dom DeLuise also did the voice of Tiger in the American Tale movies yeah oh he was in uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights oh there you go yeah also, you mentioned his son, uh, and his son, David DeLuise, was most notable for playing the dad on Wizards of Waverly Place, and also doing the voice of Coop in Megas XLR. <laughs> Dom DeLuise is also the only character to reprise his role as Jeremy in the Secrets of Nim Adventures of Timmy sequel. Yeah. Don't watch it. A again, I cannot stress this enough. Anyways... <laughs> Jeremy. Jeremy's a crow. And in the book, he's just a, he's a young crow. He's only a year old, which is like old for a crow, but also he's still a little kid. So he's very naive and not too bright. In the movie, he's just a ding dong. Yeah. He's a nice ding dong, but he's a ding dong. Uh, Jeremy flew so that Olaf could run. Yeah. And really, once we got Olaf, I mean, there are plenty of comedic uh, characters before, side characters before, but really, like, Olaf spurned a whole new generation of egregiously silly, n contributes nothing to the plot, comedic relief side characters. Yeah. Like, they're not all gonna be winners, so, yeah. Yeah. It went... <laughs> it went Jeremy... Jeremy... Tiger, Scuttle, um, then the frickin' the the whole bevy of animals that Pocahontas had. Yeah, and the gargoyles and hunchback. Oh, the gargoyles. Anyways. Yeah, no, the superior version of that is the silent animals. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, we're not here to talk about how the dog and the raccoon from Pocahontas are in homosexual love with each other. We're here to talk about how Jeremy... 
Jeremy gets saved by Mrs. Frisbee slash Brisbee because she helps. He got distracted getting a shiny piece of string, and she's trying to chew through it so that he he's because he's all tangled up, and she chews through it so he can escape and doesn't get eaten by the cat dragon. The cat named Dragon never talks in the sequel. The cats talk. Don't worry about it. We're not here to talk about the sequel. <laughs> Mrs. Frisbee helps free Jeremy from the cat, and so, uh, in the book, Jeremy's like, oh, you, I owe you a favor now, and she's like, uh, later she catches it, and she's like, L um, do you know any way of how you, I could move my child without him getting sick? And he's like, oh, I can take you to the great, the great owl, um, who is voiced by John Carradine, although in the movie, in the movie, Mrs. Frisbee already knows about, uh, the great owl, and she's like, Jeremy, here, I'm cashing in my favor, can you take me to the great owl? And Jeremy's like, I don't want to take you to the owl! The owl's gonna eat us! Because he's a comedy character voiced by Dom DeLuise, so he sounds like that mm -hmm. all the time. And he keeps forcing himself into other situations, and it's like, Jeremy, you fulfilled your purpose. Stop distracting us. <laughs> so he did, Jeremy takes her to the great horned owl, and she goes to the tree, and he's, uh, in the movie, they've definitely upped the spook factor of a lot of things. Because in the book, he's just like a normal, like, barn owl, uh, and in the, in the film, he's like a horned owl, and he's also an old horned owl. And you can see a picture of him on the on the movie poster, where he's got like the feathers that come down, a big stringy mustache, and a big bushy eyebrows, and glowing red eyes. Yeah, you only get those glowing red eyes when you're like shining a flashlight at an at an owl. And he is huge. I mean, he's huge because Mrs. Brisby is a mouse. Yes, and he's enormous, and he's got these big he's gnarled wings owl. and big gnarled feet. Yeah, owls can be pretty can be pretty big and he was yeah john carradine played a lot of versions of dracula this is a vampire owl <laughs> but no he he looms over them and he's like why are you coming to my home and miss frisbee slash brisbee is like please my son timmy is sick and i don't know what to do and he's like you have to move him well i can't because the children will kill him well then you have to keep him put but moving day is coming and our house will get crushed by the plow well then either you all die or timmy dies anyways i have to go hunt goodbye and then he's like, well, okay, hang on, I can do one polite thing. What was your name? And she's like, it's Mrs. Brisby. And he's like, oh shit, wife of Jonathan Brisby? Okay, okay, here's one other thing you can do. I didn't mention it before because I didn't think it would work. Well, if you're Jonathan's widow, and she's like, how do you know my husband? Don't worry about it. <laughs> but if you're Jonathan's widow, you can get help from the rats who live in the, the rose bush. And she's like, what? The rats who live in the rose bush. Okay, bye. And then he flies away. So then she goes and she meets, she goes to the rosebush, and after being accosted by one of the rats, Brutus, she is able to get in because it turns out the rats were friends with her husband, Jonathan. They're also friends with Mr. Ages. And she goes into the rosebush and underneath the rosebush and finds they have like a thriving society down there. And in the book, it's like, well, in the book and the movie, they both very much like become a little bit of a medieval style thing, more so in the movie because they're like, I don't think they wear clothes in the books, except Nicodemus has an eye patch. But in the movie, it's like they're all decked out in like tunics and stuff. They look they, they look very Redwall in the yeah, film. Yeah. They've got swords and everything. And I don't I don't think the Redwall books were out yet. In like seventy one, the first Redwall no novel came out in nineteen eighty six. Huh. Mm hmm. Well, maybe Secret of Nim did inspire Redwall just the scooch. Maybe. But yeah, so she goes to the rats, she finds a thriving society, and she meets she meets Mr. Ages again, and that's where she learns that he's a friend of the rats. She also meets a handsome rat named Justin, and it's like, in the book, it's just like, and he was nice, and he was a rat named Justin, and he was handsome. And it's like, in that 70s one of, like, 
oh, don't you look dapper kind of thing. Yeah. But the film took that and run with it, and there's, like, this hint that Justin and Frisbee is, like, they're not going to do anything about it because he's a rat and she's a mouse, and she comes up to his waist because she's a mouse. Yeah. But he's really, like, oh, how do you do, you delightful young mouse lady you? And she's, like, oh, the vapors! <laughs> I I honestly... Why aren't you a kind rap, Mr. Justin? Justin is another one of those names. Listen. Okay, listen. I'm aware of the fact that Justin is an older name. There was a Sir Justin in Arthurian lore. But I, I believe time travel is real and someone named Justin went back in time to inspire him because Justin is not a medieval name. I believe. Tanner, what if I told you there was an emperor of the Byzantine Empire named Justin? No, I refuse to believe it. <laughs> His Ju- nephew was Justin spontaneously manifested in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all skaters or surfers. <laughs> and they go, sup, I'm Justin. Can you can you think of an old man named Justin? Oh, that... Our prime minister is named Justin. <laughs> and one day he's going to be an old man named Justin... We're going to find his bones, and the only thing left will be his hair. (laughs) But yeah, the way Justin is drawn, it's like there was a challenge amongst the animators to see who could turn so many people into furries. (laughs) I need to be the most fuckable rat in the grocery store. Yes. (laughs) It was like that and chipmunks. Oh yeah, gadget. Yeah, gadget. Yeah. There's a, there's also the squirrel from Sword in the Stone that sexually harasses Arthur. Yeah. <laughs> Which is when when two different directions because like apparently some children were early on they were like, "Hmm, I am already learning things about what does and does not count as consent." And some children were like, "This poor squirrel, I must turn her into a human woman. She is now Guinevere." Yeah. I think the former were probably also watching Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes re reruns and knew about Pepe Le Pew. You know what? That's also possible. It's also the fact that they very they, they did really good animation when the squirrel's heart was broken. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, oh god! I can't! I can't date Arthur! He's a boy! <laughs> but this is not a Sword in the Stone podcast, although it will continue to be a Fursona podcast because it's the secrets of Nim. Uh, anyways, th- this... This is the point where um, Mrs. Frisbee slash Frisbee learns the titular secret of Nim. Um, it's also where the book and the movie start to div- d- d- divulge very significantly. Yeah. In the book, actually, well, the secret of Nim is the same in both, where it's that we learned that it was a bunch of rats were captured at a market and taken to the National Institute of Mental Health and given injections and a whole bunch of tests were done on them. And pretty soon the rats realized that they were becoming smarter because that's what the point of the tests yeah. were to see if they could make the rats smarter and also like extend their lifespans. And they were faster than the scientists could even comprehend. So that pretty soon the rats figure out an escape plan. There's mice there too. There's rats and mice and other animals, but it's the rats and mice that get the injections that make them super intelligent. Well, not super intelligent, but intelligent for rats and mice. Yeah. On kind of like they're sentient. Yeah. <laughs> they figure out how to read. They figure out how to uh, operate crude machinery. They break out. And they flee through the air ducts. Unfortunately, a majority of the mice are killed because they're too light. And so when the fan turns on, they all get swept away. The only two mice that survive are Mr. Ages and Jonathan. And this is where Miss Frisbee learns that, oh, my husband was a lab rat, literally. Yeah. And then, (laughs) so in the book, 
we learn that there is, uh, like, they go off, they, first they, like, spend the winter in a mansion, uh, and they, there's a huge library in the mansion, so they learn more about the world, they learn about, like, human society and how rats are viewed, they learn how to write, they learn how to operate some, like, can openers and stuff, and then they leave, and they go to, like, a national park, and they find, like, a broken down toy repair van that gives them a huge bevy of tools that they can, like, use, and they take it because, unfortunately, the owner did, like, they find the owner's dead body before they find the, like, the truck and trailer were full of tools. But they take all these tools, and they start creating their own little city underneath the rosebush in the Fitzgibbon farm, and that leads us to the modern day. Um, but there was a few rats, specifically led by a rat named Jenner, who they were like, this is great, we can just uh, live off of the human scraps forever, and it's great. But the other rats have developed a sense of morality, and they're like, the, the, this doesn't feel right, because we're just stealing everything. We're not creating We're not creating a rat civilization like we had dreamed of. We're just, like, leeching and stealing from the humans and just recreating a human civilization. Yeah. And there, there's stuff in the book how they kind of, they don't look down on the humans, but they, like, very quickly, like, they look at how they're viewed by the humans and, like, well, humans do this much more often. Like, they learn that they have a bad reputation for spreading diseases. And uh, their leader, Nicodemus, goes, okay, but, like, maybe rats have spread diseases, but never willingly and never to the degree that humans have, which is, hmm, it's a lot harder these days. Yeah. Um, and it's also, he reads this story about, uh, the rat race and the story that inspired the term, which is like, a woman buys a vacuum to make her house cleaner. And then because it's so clean, all the other women get jealous. And so they start buying vacuums. And so because so many people are buying vacuums, a vacuum factory is set up in town that starts like spouting smoke into the air. And because they're all using more electricity because of the vacuums, an electricity plant shows up and it starts polluting even more. And there's a whole bunch of soot and stuff over town. And so in the end, everyone had a vacuum and their houses were just a little bit less clean than they were before. Mm -hmm. And the, the story is what's used to explain the concept of the rat race to Nicodemus through the book that he's reading. And he's like, well, I was hoping it would be about rats, but it was about people. And honestly, rats would never do this. This is more like a people race. And then later on, he's like, we have embroiled ourselves in the people race. Mm -hmm. And so that's when they make their plan to leave the rosebush, uh, do a whole bunch of stealing uh, in order to live without stealing anymore. They're going to move all of their stuff into Thorn Valley where they can, like, start agriculture and build their own homes, even potentially, like, get electricity back that they produce themselves instead of having to, again, leech it off a farm or Fitzgibbons. And it's a great life, but Jenner doesn't like that. Jenner wants to, like, steal from the humans all the time, and he doesn't even care if they're discovered, because, it's like, we're, he does look down on the humans. He's like, if they try to poison us, we'll poison them back. And if they try to blow us up with dynamite, we'll find out where the dynamite's kept, and we'll blow them up. And the other rats are like, that's war. Yeah. J Jenner... We're rats and you're trying to go to war with humans. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so the differences in the film are that in the book, Jenner has like already left the rats with a few of his followers to do his own thing. Whereas in the film, they're still debating the validity of actually leaving. And so Jenner is still there. And Jenner is the one who like, he also meets Mrs. Frisbee and he's like, Oh, hello, Mrs. Frisbee. You are welcome among the rats of Nim. Thanks to your husband, Jonathan. Yeah. I would not be surprised if the, um, what's-his-name from Great Mouse Detective was highly inspired by Jenner. Radigan? Yes, Radigan, thank yeah. you. That's that's another thing I forgot to mention, is that Don Bluth did actually uh pitch Sequence of Nim as a Disney film, and Disney was like, no, we just made The Rescuers, we don't need any more mouse films. And then they proceeded to make at least two more mouse films. Yeah. But yeah, so in the film, Jenner is still there, 
And so m- several of the rats that, like, specifically Justin and Ages and Nicodemus, they're all, like, they're very well aware that Jenner's planning something, and so they have to be cautious about him. Mm-hmm. In the book, Nicodemus is a normal rat. In the film, Nicodemus is an old fucking rat. He also has the long mustache and long beard, and he's blind, and he's, like, w- warts and moles and gnarled and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's a good guy, but I always thought, when I was little, I thought he was a villain, just because I only saw bits and pieces, and I was like, he's an evil wizard rat. He's also voiced by Derek Jacobi. Yes. And so he's all he's all a messed up rat, which is like, yo, how are you so old when you're the one who says to Mrs. Brisby, oh, by the way, the experiments made us uh, functionally the same uh, age as humans. Also, in the book, there's uh, female rats, and the rats have started breeding, and they have so some rat children there as well. Okay. But it's like, in, in the movie, just mil- all the rats are guys. As far as we're concerned, all the rats are guys. Huh. So we don't, we don't get Isabella in the film. It's just male rats, a whole bunch of male rats. Um, anyways, the other big departure from the book is that Nicodemus pulls out a magic amulet. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, here you go, Mrs. Brisby. This was your husband's and he wanted you to have it. And Mrs. Brisby, like, looks at it. She's like, wow, it's so pretty. And there's an engraving that says, uh, any door can be opened as long as you have the key. Now, this is something that Jonathan says to her in the book before his death. And it's basically just like, um, you can basically solve any problem as long as you ask the right questions. Yeah. But not only does this phrase have no reason in the film, but also the amulet has no explanation in the film. And like, I, w- I was fully prepared to pick a lot of nits with this film, but this is not a nit. This is a fucking, this is a massive in- parasitic insect on this film, in my opinion. Because why is there a magic amulet? Because when you start fucking around with the mind, you get psychic powers and magic soon follows. The the explanation that Dom Bluth did, because this was not like a corporate thing. The, 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 when he went to MG, I believe it was MGM. Um, yes, when he went to MGM. When he went to them, they weren't like, okay, well, we'll, we'll fund your rat film, but you have to put in a magic amulet. No, Don Bluth himself was like, so his explanation was, when you're animating stuff, it's already a little bit magic, so it just makes sense to put some magic in there. And then at the conclusion, the amulet is a, a reference, and it's a symbolic of Mrs. Brisby gaining the courage to help save her family. And it might also be, be a metaphor for Jesus. Uh, yeah, yeah, Mormon. Mrs. Brisby finds courage, which means she finds religion, and that means that what she holds the magic amulet and she glows red. <laughs> I am, that is. <laughs> she grabs the rote and gains powerful telekinesis and levitates her home to the proper side of the boulder so that it doesn't get hit by the plow. She is both, like, Matthias and Martin and Madden Mayo, but also Jean Grey. Exactly! <laughs> And that, that, that is basically what happens after. Cause it's like, okay, Nicodemus is like, we will help you move your family home. Uh, we're gonna just fully lick, cause it's her, uh, the, 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 um, the Brisby home is in a cinder block. So yeah. they're just gonna lift it out of the ground and then rebury it on the other side of the boulder so the plow can't get it. And like, in order to do that, they need to, the cat to not be about. And so they tell her that whenever they need to do major stuff without the cat in, getting involved, Mr. Ages was create a brew that poison, or not poison, but like put dragon to sleep. And then uh, Jonathan would be the one to put it in his food so that he would be, like, asleep all day. Um, <laughs> we are drugging this cat. 
Uh, and Mrs. Brisby volunteers to drug the cat, and so she does, but then she gets caught by the humans, but then she gets out and she races uh, the house relocation. And in the book, they just relocate the house fine, and it's great, and it's fine, and it's done. And then the, all the mice leave, except so they stay behind because, okay, so in the book, we find out that Jenner's rats are all dead <laughs> because they tried to steal an engine from a hardware store and they didn't realize it was plugged in. So when they try and like grab it, they short circuit and all get electrocuted to death. Uh, but then Nim gets wind of this, and so they are coming to investigate the farm. And so the big climax of the of the book is the rats escaping with everything that they can to their new home in Thorn Valley. And then leaving a few behind is basically decoys to convince the Nim people that they got them all. Yeah. And some of them die because the rat hole gets gassed. Yeah. But, like, they've removed all traces that they created a civilization. Mm-hmm. In the movie, the Nim people never show up. The rats do still leave, but it's pretty painless Mm -hmm. the big climax is that jenner cuts the rope that the rats are using to move the house and so the house falls and it does crush nicodemus wicked witch of the west style (laughs) yeah it did which is is tragic but his legs are just sticking out the bottom yeah and then yeah so the the some of the rats are trying to get the house out because it's sinking into the mud while the other rats are trying to fight off Jenner, because it's just Jenner. Like, even the one guy who was with Jenner in the film decides to betray Jenner at the end. He, yeah. like, throws a sword to Justin, which Justin uses to kill Jenner. Yeah. And then Justin is like, and now a new rat civilization has dawned, because we got rid of the two people who were shitty rats. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and then Miss Brisby taps into the Phoenix Force, moves the house, and then everything's happily ever after. Oh, and Jeremy gets to fuck. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, the the other raven at the end. Yeah, because he, he's been gathering shinies all day, all the, through the film to create a nest to attract a, a mate, and then Miss Wright shows up, and she fully tackles him into a bush because she's just as clumsy as he is, and then they immediately fall in love. Ta-da! Um, anyways, okay, so, um, oh gosh, we're already 40 minutes in. So here's some of the things that bugged me after I first watched the film. Okay. If the rats are so smart, and the rats and Jonathan Natures are so different apart from Mrs. Brisby, why is she, like, also a sentient mouse? What? How come she can comprehend things similar to Jonathan? There is stuff in both the film and the book where it's, like, she has a little bit more difficulty reading than Jonathan did, and, like, he had to work harder to teach her than he did the children, and the children are basically fluent in English, which yeah. is like a clear sign and it's again something that's pointed out in the book that's like yeah are the children of the rats and the mice who have been experimented on are going to go off and become very intelligent themselves mm-hmm. but it's like she already has a home that's decorated like a little english cottage she's already wearing clothing there's also there's auntie shrew who yes. in the book is she's just a shrew mm-hmm. and in the book she's not as i don't the snow none of the animals wear clothes in the book but in the film auntie shrew is also a fully sentient shrew who's got, like, clothes and everything, and she's bodging yeah. in. She's like, oh, everybody, it's moving day! It's moving day! She also, like, in the film, there's a sequence where the plow starts early, and so it has to be sabotaged to, like, delay moving day. And so Aunt- Auntie Shrew, action aunt, jumps into the inner workings and bites, like, the the, the fuel line so that the, the plow breaks down just before it reaches the house. And so she's like, all right, Mrs. Brisby, I've ordered the plow for now, but you'll have to find another way to deal with your family. Oh, I just want to say that the voice actress was also in Mary Poppins as one of the maids. Huh. Yeah. Hermione Yolanda Ruby Clinton Badley. Yeah, that is a name. She voiced the madame in the Aristocats. Oh, yeah. Anyway, you were saying. 
uh, as I was saying, yeah, why, why Mr. Shrew so smart? And it's very much this, the situation of, like, the, the animals seem to have already a little bit of certain society going on. So, other than the fact that the rats are able to ba- basically get electricity going, and there's not that much of a difference between them in the film and the book. That was, like, my biggest nits. Yeah. Uh, but then I was like, okay, but, but the theme of this is that once the rats start figuring things out, they're truly not that different between humans and rats. And I, the, the, kind of the message of the book is, like, the, the main one, the one that they, they laid out for you, is that it is important to make things for yourself instead of stealing them. Yeah. And that, like, you, you can twist that in a weird way because there is a thing where it's like Nicodemus saying, like, we were stagnating because we were taking things. We were not, we were not laboring our, ourselves. And it's like, we, listen, we, we do not dream of labor, but there is something, uh, important and fulfilling in the act of laboring. And it's yeah. very much like the books, the, the book isn't saying you should dream of labor, but the book is saying that, like, worthwhile labor is an important part of society. Mm-hmm. And it's not even like the rats are trying to go full lettuce. It's just that they feel uncomfortable taking electricity that they themselves did not produce. And that's why, again, in the book, they're saying, yeah, we can eventually, we'll figure out how to make electricity ourselves. Because yeah. we still have a lot of access to, like, books and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and another theme is the importance of community. Where it's like, again, the animals all have this little society going on. The rats obviously have their own little civilization underneath. Yeah. And it's Jenner and the ones who strike out on their own. They're the ones who suffer the consequences for it. Whereas the other rats are working together to help each other and to help Mrs. Brisby. Mm-hmm. And even beyond that, and again, something that comes up in the book, is that even if there's no unified situation and it's not like the mice get along all the time with the crows. Like, it's it's a situation where it's like, they cross paths, but they don't fully work together. Yeah. But something co- that comes up between Miss Frisbee and Jeremy, and Jeremy and the owl and Miss Frisbee and the owl, is that we all help each other against the cat. Yes. Um, But I think uh, a third thing going on here is what I said before, is that the the animal society is truly not that much different from the human society. And then another thing I was thinking, going way science fiction, <laughs> is that potentially the experiments on the mice and rats that increase their intelligence and lifespan are not only passed down through reproduction, but also simple proximity, some manner of airborne virus that does not cause anything negative to happen to the animals, but rather rewrites their DNA in the same manner and causes them to also become sentient. Um, that's a little too silly, in my opinion, yeah. unless you're going to want to go with a real, real deep sci-fi thing, and that kind of gets away from the themes of the film. Yeah. There's... A, I think this is almost like a time and a place for, like, a don't worry about it situation. Yes. Yeah. Um, but no, and I think... I think... So, okay, now we're getting into the actually remaking the thing. Mm-hmm. I think if we make it clear that, like, ultimately the mice and the rats and the humans, like, the, their societies may not be exactly the same, but they resemble each other because it's this general idea of, like, once you're, like, it's really easy to become smart enough to learn cooperation and compassion. Yeah. We can, we can, we can easily bring anti-capitalism into this and just straight up say, like, the, the reason that people get sucked into the people race is because of capitalism. And because the rats were trying so hard to emulate them, that's how they also got it. And so that's what led to the corruption of gender. Yeah. It wasn't this, like, the, the curse of knowledge. Um, and in fact, 
so, uh, something I really like that they added in the film is Nicodemus saying, like, straight up, we cannot abide by sealing anymore. We know too much. Yes. And then that is what it's also very much damning on Jenner and his followers because you you also know better, Jenner, mm-hmm. and yet you continue to go down this path because you've decided it's easier and it's better for you. Yeah. So, but the one thing that I do want to get rid of is the magic amulet. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, it, it would be one thing if there were, if we went more sci-fi-ish with soft sci-fi, like, maybe a Gaia Theory situation, but, like, the magic amulet is... Where the fuck did this come? The magic amulet is the fantasy version of me saying that, oh, it's an airborne virus that makes mice smarter. Yeah. It truly comes out of nowhere and adds very little to the plot other than getting you out of a bind. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I think the plot, the film would be much more interesting if Brisby is, like, she does not require the amulet. She's just able to, like, pull things off herself. Yeah. She, like, figures out a way to, like, rejigger the police that are getting the cinder block house out. Or, I, I, I don't know, again, leading into the psychic powers is just like... No, there's, a, again, no psychic yeah, power. Yeah. She is not tapping into the, <laughs> so the phoenix force. <laughs> okay, she just, like, figures out a way to, way to save that little house with her kids. And- well, no, I actually, I have an idea that, okay. I have an idea that came to me. And again, it does play into these other themes that I've been mentioning earlier. Came to me when I was reading the book earlier and think and picking at these nits. <laughs> and it does actually hinge on Auntie Shrew. Oh. Hi, I'm Tanner. I'm here to become an Auntie Shrew apologist. <laughs> um, here's, here's my big change that I want to introduce to our reboot. Auntie Shrew is also an escapee from Nim. Okay. We're going to expand it to that just like... Instead of it being just, like, 20 rats and two mice. Well, first off, I want to increase the number that was able to get out. Yeah. Because even if you had 20 rats and, like, it was 10 males and 10 female rats, I, that's not enough for a breeding population. But then again... I want it to be a larger number of... We can still have, like, only a few mice, but... But also, like, rats and mice, they breed very differently from humans. Like... But would they continue to do so? Yeah. Because, like... Looking at the film version with, like, uh, Mrs. Brisby and and Jonathan's children, like, there's Teresa, Martin, Timothy, and Cynthia, and they're all implied to be different ages from each other. So, I guess, like, with the experiments that have been going on, and maybe, like, the weird effects that being around these super smart mice and rats have, like, even Mrs. Brisby's reproductive habits are changing to be a bit more human. She caught an STI, sexually transmitted intelligence. Well, like, okay. That's again, this is this this is getting too deep into the biology. All I'm saying yeah. is like, here's even if the rats were reproducing at the rate that a real rat does, if you only have ten litters of rats, that's very quickly gonna lead to some concerns for inbreeding. Yeah, that's true. I'm just saying that like, if we up the numbers to maybe thirty or forty rats we're able to get out. Yeah, and then, like, their breeding is slowing down to be a bit more like human reproduction, because, like, one of the... Okay, so human reproduction is terrible biologically. We can only carry one infant at a time. Like, the womb is designed to carry one infant at a time. 
That's why like twins and other multiples tend to be born prematurely. And there's mm-hmm. an upper limit to how many uh, multiples you can carry um, before the, the fetuses start dying. Yeah. And there's massive risks to pregnancy from, for uh, female persons and like some biologists and paleontologists think that we developed midwifery maybe before we developed fire yeah because unassisted birthing is incredibly dangerous for humans like even our closest ape relatives they can just like pop out a baby and they're relatively okay but for us it's like the big thing is like our heads are big yeah. Our heads are proportionally big for our big brains. I am not a biologist. I am just like reading shit online and being but like, it is, oh, okay. It is very much one of those things where it's like, we would have easily gone extinct if it weren't for the fact that we were smart enough to uh, invent workarounds for it. Mm-hmm. Like, at at a certain point, there is no natural, there is very little natural selection going on with humanity. And it's like, evolution doesn't have a natural endpoint. It always just goes towards what helps you survive the easiest in your current situation. Yeah. But I would say that evolution kind of stops when you introduce sentience to the mix, because at that point you, you get to choose who lives and dies. Yeah. And you go out of your way to ensure that more people can live. Mm-hmm. Like there's, um, that thing about the earliest record of society is generally considered a, like, a bone that was meant, like, there was evidence that a bone had been broken and then healed properly thanks to a cast. And it's like, this only could have happened through cooperation. Yeah. Um, anyways, so, I can't remember where you're with the tangent. (laughs) Okay, yeah, so increasing the number of rats, but also state that, like, there were many, I mean, again, this is something that the book states, too, is that there were many, many animals in this, uh, lab. But they only focus on the mice and the rats because it's a, a book about mice and rats. But we can say, like, all of the animals were experimented on, and Nicodemus doesn't even know if any of them grew intelligent. And Nicodemus can even say in the film, during his whole flashback narration, that, like, I don't even know how many of us truly became intelligent, but it seemed that the rats and mice became smarter just as quickly. And at some point, we just had a huge jailbreak, and a bunch of us broke out. Huh. Yeah, but I want to say that Auntie, Auntie Shrew also escaped, and yeah. in fact escaped with the rats, and lived with the rats for a bit. But she was the first person to leave, not because she wanted to keep on stealing, like Jenner, but she was the first to recognize that they were creating a more human society than, like, a rodent society. And she was like, you know what? We're going to tear each other apart, and I don't appreciate that, so I'm going to go strike it out on my own. And, oh, Jonathan, it, Jonathan's wife is now a widow, so I'll go help out. Yeah, in the book, the sh- Auntie Shrew is in the book, but she's just a shrew. But yeah. even the book, it's like, she has a piece of straw that she's using to test how unfrozen the ground is. Mm-hmm. So even then, it's like, Auntie Shrew, you have developed some manner of scientific method. <laughs> yeah. And for people who are wondering, shrews are used in laboratories as, um, for experiments. I I was yeah. wondering that, too. I'm like, are shrews used for this I stuff? mean, if they weren't, we could have even said, because... We could just say that, like, oh, she was caught by accident. Yeah. Because, like, if you're just relying on, like, grunts to capture a bunch of wild rodents, they would easily scoop up a shrew in the same basket as mice and rats. Yeah. 
Actually, even even in Animorphs, when they have to go find a mouse to for a mission, Tobias grabs one, and the Cassie is the one who goes, "No, Tobias, you got a shrew." <laughs> Which is it, it? It's not a huge factor, but Rachel is like, "This is a very aggressive mouse." Yeah. But yeah, so Jeremy does kind of disappear from the book after he takes um, Frisbee to the owl. In the movie, he tries to tag along into the rose bush because he's a ding dong. And Mrs. Brisbee is like, you know what, Jeremy? My kids are alone and I bet they're so scared. They need a big, strong man to watch over them. And Jeremy's like, yes, I'm I'm a big, strong man. I'm a big, strong crow. I'm going to go watch over your children, Mrs. Brisbee. And Mrs. Brisbee's like, yes, you should go right now. And he's like, I'm going to go right now. So he flies off to protect the kids, and then he immediately gets caught by Auntie Shrew, who ties him up with his own strings. Aww. <laughs> He's like, mm, vile, sinister crow, trying to get the rats involved. Um, and in the movie, it's just because she's like, ooh, I don't trust the rats, because they're rats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead of it being animal jingoism in the film, it's going to be, she knows the rats, and since she's been away for so long, she assumes that, like, her and Jonathan were the only dis- decent people among them, and Mr. Ages. It was like, her, Jonathan, and Ages go off on their own. Shrew specifically because she can't stand the rats, but Jonathan because he wants to fall in love, and Ages because, ooh, I want to do science. Yeah. One minor change I want to make is that I want to change the spelling of Mr. Ages' name. Mm-hmm. Because, okay, so in, in the book and the film, it's A-G-E-S, as in yes. he's aged. Yeah. But th- that feels an outlier among the of all the other names, which are like, not old-fashioned, but you've got stuff like Nicodemus and Jenner and Justin and Jeremy, and it's yeah. like, until I looked at the spelling, I thought his name was A-E-G-I-S, like the Greek shield. Oh, okay. So I just think it would be a sensible aesthetic change to change his name to Mr. Aegis instead yeah. of Mr. Ages. Yeah. Anyways, uh, so yeah, in in my version, Auntie Shrew isn't going to trust the rats because she assumes at this point they're all going to be like Jenner. And they're all going to tear each other apart trying to be the rat who has the most. They have yeah. they have fully become the rat race as far as she's concerned. So she just pays them no mind. <laughs> and then because she only hears about Mrs. Frisbee going to visit the rats from Jeremy, and Jeremy being Jeremy, she just assumes like, oh, like Jeremy's off his rocker and oh gosh, Mrs. Frisbee's been kidnapped by the rats or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so... When the rats sh- like show up to help move the house, she's gonna be fending them off with a big stick. <laughs> I like that. And then she'll be like dispatched to go. She will dispatch herself to go find um, Mrs. Brisby, and mm-hmm. she'll find her after Mrs. Brisby has managed to escape from the cage in the house after she was captured by the humans. Then she gets out. Yeah. And then uh, Auntie Shrew is gonna be like, "The rats are trying to steal your children," and Brisby's like, "No, they're trying to save my children." She's like, "Oh." But Jenner's still there, and he's probably going to kill people, and da-da-da, something along those lines. Yeah. And so they have to race back. And then by the time they get back, it is turned into a full-blown civil war. Uh, Jenner is going to have more more followers like he did in the book, instead of just one guy who's, like, really on the fence about things, like in the yeah. movie. And so, yes, it's time for a rat fight! Bow, 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 bow. <laughs> very, very Redwall-inspired. Um, Nicodemus yes. will be impaled, probably, because that's a bit more dramatic. I want him to get stabbed to the back by Jenner instead of crushed Wicked Witch of the West style. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then because they're busy fighting, the house does still fall in the mud, and it's sinking. So it's going to be Miss Brisby who, like, 
is trying to pull it out, and she's like, she's barely holding it out of the mud. And her little mouse muscles are straining, and Auntie Shrew is like, I could help, but I'm not strong enough either. It's like, we need more people, but all the rats are fighting to make sure that Jenner doesn't slaughter them all. They can't, like, leave to help either. And so Auntie Shrew is going to get the other animals of the field. She's going to get all the, like, the squirrels and the rabbits and the chipmunks and even Jeremy. And all the other animals are going to come together. And they're going to work together to pull the house out of the mud and move it to the other side of the boulder. Yay! Because they now live in a society! <laughs> and then the ending will be much much similar to the ending of the book and the film, where it's like, okay, okay, Nicodemus survived the book. But like in the ending of the film, Nicodemus died, Justin has taken over leadership of the rats, mm-hmm. and the rats have still taken all of their stuff out and moved to Thorn Valley. Uh, and the animals, all of a sudden, they have this better appreciation for, like, cooperation. And so we see, like, during these summer months, the animals start working together and forming their own little societies. And maybe here we can get, like, a hint that maybe whatever, like, created the Rats of Nim is also helping to inspire these animals. But for the most part, it's them learning the power of cooperation. Yeah. But also this hint that mm, the rats are getting wiser, the mice are getting wiser. Who knows what will happen if the shrews and the rabbits and the squirrels also start getting wiser. The crows are already pretty wise. Jeremy's an outlier. (laughs) Jeremy is an exception. Your average crow is actually fairly intelligent. And also, again, it's the fact that Jeremy is young. Yes. Jeremy will get smarter as he gets older. His brain's not done cooking. Yeah. Yeah, we could even imply that Jeremy is, like, pretty fresh out of the nest. Yeah. Um, And then the the other little, like, narrative change I want is because... Like, again, the rats still feel bad about stealing, and they're doing all of this so that they don't have to rely on the humans anymore. But I want to introduce, like, when Miss Frisbee first meets the rats, they've also been, like, they found a whole bunch of, like, precious gems and stuff, like, underneath the rosebush, because they keep digging really, really deep into things. And so they've been, like, gathering a whole bunch of gems and whatnot. And then at the end of the film... Instead of Nim finding out anything about the rats, the Nim, as far as Nim is concerned, the rats are gone. There's nothing to worry about. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the uh, Fitzgibbons are going to, like, find left on their counter, on their stoop or something, a satchel that's just full of gems. Right. That more than make up for whatever they've had to, like, pay extra to replace things the rats stole or to pay extra electricity or what have you. And there's going to be a little, little note that they have to get a magnifying glass out to read. And it's going to say, um, our apologies and appreciation for all you have helped us in the creation of our new civilization. We shan't bother you anymore. You're sincerely the rats of Nim. <laughs> and they're going to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> this is like the Keebler elves. <laughs> the Keebler rats. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's the narrative thing. And then as for stylistically the film... First off, in order to truly capture the spirit of the film, it does need to be created by a bunch of Fox and Disney animators just saying, fuck you, I'm leaving. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently there is a television series in the works from the Fox Corporation, which is now the Disney Corporation. Yeah. So, uh, the history is a flat circle that's on fire. (laughs) Yeah. Here's, here's the other thing, uh, um, that is important, which is, uh, that stylistically it doesn't still need to be animated, but it needs to be a modern animation that is, like, using the tools we have in our box now. Yeah. Um, I do think it should still hone close stylistically to the original and look very, like, 
hand-drawn sketchbook, but you can do a lot more with that. And I think looking at the trailer for Nimona that comes out soon on Netflix, watch it, and so you also can say to Disney and Fox, fuck you. But I think the Nimona style would be really, really good. So yeah, put put N.D. Stevenson... Also, Don Bluth is still alive. So Don Bluth can definitely produce while N.D. Stevenson is, like, directing the animation. Yeah. And also, Spielberg's still alive. And because Spielberg really helped Don Bluth get his, like, production stuff off the ground, have Steven Spielberg uh, producing it, too. Yeah, I know. I think that's really cool and really respectful to the original story and the uh, and the good uh, first film. Don't watch the sequels, kid. Yeah. I just I just hope Don Bluth is okay when I go into the room like, I'm sorry, man, but there's no there's no magic amulet and uh, <laughs> Miss Brisby is not discovering the power of Christ. Because <laughs> that's the that's the other thing, is that like when when she the amulet gains power like from the cure power the pure of heart courage stuff. And so she goes down into the mud with the ship and then floats back up with her arms outstretched. And it's like, ah, yes, after the third day, Mrs. Brisby emerged from the cave and was fully alive. Yeah. It's Rat Jesus. Anyways. Anyways. Anyways, now I'm going to go watch The Secret of Nim 2, Timmy to the Rescue. And while I do that, you're going to watch a friendship promo. The holidays are just around the corner. And there's no better place to enjoy them than Christmas Hide, Ohio. This idyllic town is just the place to enjoy any winter celebration. We've got candle and tree lightings. Carolers singing your favorite holiday classics. Bakers baking yummy treats. Kids on bikes. Dancing, parades, and more. Take a spin on the peppermint twist at the historic Candy Cane Amusement Park. Get warm and cozy at the Gingerbread House Bed and Breakfast. Indulge in a world-famous snow pair at Partridge Farms. Whatever you're celebrating, celebrate with us in Christmastide, Ohio. For more information, please go to ChristmastideOhio.com. Tanner, why did you do that to yourself? I actually didn't. I turned it off 30 seconds in because I remembered that you're not supposed to watch the sequel. Yeah. Made without Don Booth's involvement or the input of poor reception. It was a terrible idea. Nobody liked that. Yeah. It doesn't even look the same. No. You're not Timmy. You're some other bastard. No, it it looks like directed directed video garbage. During a scavenger mission, Timmy meets a female mouse named Jenny McBride, so they don't even incorporate Isabella from the book. Anyway. Anyway, Lindsay, what's the secret of where you can be found on the internet? I can be found on Twitter at lindsaym476, it's both spelled with an A, and you can get to all my other social media bullshits from there. Tanner, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at SparkyUpstart and Instagram at SparkyYoungUpstart. And you can also find this very podcast on Twitter at N-I-I-R-Y-F-Pod. Those are the letters for now if I repeat you first. And if you pronounce them correctly, you will unlock the powers of the magic amulet. You can also email us at notifireboutyoufirst at gmail.com where you can send us your comments, critiques, criticisms, and your disclaimers from the National Institute of Mental Health. That no rats were harmed in the making of this film? Yes. 
And you can also email us a friendship promo, whether it's an audio clip or a proof for us to read. But either way, we'll put in a free ad for your podcast or your YouTube or even your DeviantArt. Now, if I reboot you first as a member of the Corner Podcast Network, and you can talk more about this show or others on the network via our Corner Podcast Discord. As always, our cover art is by Alex Fierce, and her work can be found on ptchew.com. And our theme music is done by Sean Clake, whose contact info is available upon request. This podcast is recorded on Treaty 4 territory, the traditional lands of the Cree, Sultul, and Assiniboine, and homeland of the Métis. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Tanner. Do you got a hint for next time? Uh, next time I think we're going to space to break some rocks. Oh, yes, I remember you mentioned you wanted to do this one. Awesome. Well, we'll be doing that episode next time, but not Levitate into the air and gain psychic powers. <laughs> mm.